up, internet? I tried vaping, but it just makes you look so much more like a cunt. My name is Matthew Grohl. And London can be really overwhelming. My name is Shahir Dowd. And this is the only podcast about movies, specifically the film Last Night in Soho. Ooh, I thought you could hit that a little higher. Last Night in Soho. And take it again, a little bit more of the vibrato. So actually, I, I, no. I, what, here's the problem, Shahir. Every time with this movie, since its inception, since I saw trailers or the name of it or whatever, have you heard the song? Um, uh, who's it by? It's by uh, Murray Head. It's from a, it's from a musical. It's about a musical about like chess masters, and the song is "One Night in Bangkok." Oh yeah, "One Night in Bangkok" make the whole your oyster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that song. So now, for whatever reason, whenever I say "Last Night in Soho," I'm like "Last Night in Soho," do do do, and that's nothing. See, you made fun of me when I was like, when I did "Mank," and I was like, for some reason, I just had "Mank, Mank, Mank of the Jungle," strong as he can be. But that doesn't sound like that at all. "Mank of the Jungle" makes no sense. "One Night in Bangkok" does not. Sound anything like last night in Soho? It's the same number of syllables. There is there is, no. There's nothing the same number. So Bangkok is not the same number of syllables as last Soho. night in Soho. <laughs> one night in Bangkok. Uh, actually, you know what? You got, you got me there. Yeah. The number of letters in Bangkok are, are yes. More. No, I didn't say letters. Listen, yeah. you, listen. <laughs> all I'm saying is it's stuck in my head like that, and I can't for such a musical film. Oh, that is a great but, song though. One night in Bangkok. I remember that. Right? That is it's really dead ass, by the way. In a city. Yeah, yeah. That is. <laughs> there are a bunch of millennials listening to us now, going, "What the fuck have I walked into?" I've There's walked nine into a, millennials yeah. listening to us right now <laughs> who've gone like, "I've walked into an elderly care retirement home at this Open moment." Open <laughs> your fucking Spotify's and have your goddamn mind blown when you search for "One Night in Bangkok." I will say this: the first like minute and a half is like a big orchestral thing, <laughs> and then the song starts. It's fucking weird. It's a uh, great, great track. I remember. It's it's yeah. dope, but it is uh, just for the uh, viewers at home. This song is from nineteen. Let me see this. Oh, uh, now we're really off course. I'm really, so sorry, everybody. So I'm sorry so sorry. sorry. Nineteen eighty four. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was but a child, as was I. But we're uh, not here to discuss that seminal so- song. We're here to discuss the Edgar Wright vehicle last night in Soho. This must be an exciting day for you. So I feel like what's happened this year is that a lot of the great filmmakers that I think you and I love have been putting out their films this year. There is a Wes Anderson movie right now. There is a Paul Thomas Anderson movie right now. There are two Edgar Wright movies right now. There is a Peter Jackson eight-hour documentary on uh, Disney Plus at this moment. about. I need to watch that real bad. There's a lot of great stuff. You, I, I felt like, but, but I, I answer me this question: hmm. Why did it feel like you weren't as excited about this one? Oh, did did I mention that before in another episode? No, I, I just got the sense, like, like ah, so you're right, you're you're correct. I just didn't know if I ever brought it up. Yeah. Um, so there was, it was kind of a twofold thing. Um, one, I knew it was sort of his take on like actual horror, not, um, mm-hmm. not like a shot of a dead horror. Like, yeah. do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and I didn't know if I'd really vibe with it. And then two, to be perfectly honest, the ad campaign for it kind of threw me off. Okay. And I don't know if it was because there was such a long lead up due to COVID and whatever. And like, I was just like every, every preview I saw for it didn't get me really psyched for it. 
Um, I like everyone involved. That's the other weird thing. Like I, I, you know, obviously I like Edgar Wright. I'm a huge fan of, um, I'm blanking on her name. Allison McKenzie. Uh, no, 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 no. The other writer, um, who oh, did 1917. Oh, uh, Kirstie, uh, Kirstie, Kirstie Will, uh, Wilson, uh, Car- Carl, yeah, yeah, Carl, yeah. Uh, um, uh, so I was psyched there. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, obviously Thomas and McKenzie's great. Anna Taylor Joy is awesome. Uh, who doesn't love a Doctor Who? Yeah. Um, you know, there, there, there's a lot going on sort of in this movie with people that uh, I, I like and respect. But I don't know what it was. I, do, I, I, I couldn't put my finger on it, but I wasn't really terribly psyched for it. Like oh. I knew I would watch it when it came out and I knew that I would, uh, you know, be there for it. But I, I don't know. I, I blame it on the marketing campaign. I huh. really do. There was just something about it that felt incredibly – because – I, I think I know why. Because there's an initial – there's a couple twists and, like, sort of things are revealed and, you know, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. They do a good job at not um, ruining those moments in the, in, the, um, in the trailers and in the advert campaign. But, like, it, it, all of it felt incredibly one-note – in that, in those moments, and I, and I'm, I'm very used to sort of Edgar Wright's films sort of working on a bunch of different cylinders, mm-hmm. and this one felt like it was working on one, at least in the, in the lead up. You know what I mean? Hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I, I was, I was thinking about it myself. I couldn't quite put my finger on it, but that's the closest I can come to. Were you? Like, I, I mean, like, I didn't watch the trailer as I, as I never do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, and then the thing. I think my lack of enthusiasm was because it was playing in a theater and I wouldn't be able to go see it in a theater. So mm. I was like, okay, it's just not for me at this point because I hope everyone goes to see this movie. I hope everyone gets excited about it. If if we were in the pre-COVID times, I would have been first in line to see this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just kind of put it in that way. But you know, again, I didn't see it. From what I saw of the poster, the other thing that I thought might have got you excited about it was that it did it was reminiscent of bad times at the El Royale, right? Like I, I yeah. just felt, I just felt like the, the sort of um, the milieu of what was being presented felt like it was bad times at the El Royale, but Edgar Wright, Edgar fucking yeah. he's doing it. Right. Who, we've talked about on this podcast ad nauseum because I know he's one of your favorite filmmakers. Um, favorite I've, working filmmaker, I would say. Favorite work. Okay. Who's your favorite dead filmmaker? Just so I have a comparison. Um, uh, let's see. Or not I always working, say working for whatever reason. Yeah, who, Who's who your can't work anymore? Unemployed filmmaker. Uh, <laughs> you? No, yeah, that's uh, true. <laughs> touche, touche. <laughs> oh, excuse me. Um, no, I love Edgar Wright, man. Like, uh, it's funny watching this movie. Also, made me like I haven't really revisited like Baby Driver lately, and yeah. I was like, I, that feels like something you know, despite whatever nonsense is around it, that I I, I should do. <laughs> and uh, you know, I will watch Scott Pilgrim at the drop of a hat. Uh, I love all of the Cornetto trilogy. I, I I still want to see his documentary on that band, the Sparks um, Brothers. Yeah, Sparks Brothers, because I heard that's really good. And I, I mean, Spaced, I watch probably once a. Year year just right. in in the background so yeah. like i don't know i i am a fan of course, of course. Um, why wouldn't you be he's great yeah um uh, however uh i i think i said this on my on my previous part he's i i love him as a filmmaker i think he's so good at what he does i think he is you know like we in our werewolves within conversation mm-hmm. uh i brought up the fact that there is a particular style of editing that feels very edgar right which is mm-hmm. not to say that he 
pioneered the particular sort of like but he's a torchbearer cut 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 sort of approach but he is so good at it that he has defined that style um so well and 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 there's something in in this particular film that i want to talk about that's so so very much the edgar wright uh style of filmmaking um but he in in my opinion i of his films i have become increasingly uh there's no level of frustration on my part but i have always felt like there is going to be some point at which Edgar Wright isn't just beloved by film fans and those who know alike. He, th- there is going to be some moment when Edgar Wright reaches the sort of same name recognition as a Christopher Nolan, as a Steven Spielberg, as a Peter Jackson. Like there's just there has to be that moment because he's so he's too as a Quentin Tarantino even uh, he's too good at what he does mm-hmm. and and. But I, 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 I have just with every film I have seen of his, um, I, I feel like I, I'm always going, yeah, but this is not the film. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, and, and 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 Shaun of the Dead, but and that has happened in sort of successive order, which is that um, I still think Shaun of the Dead is the best thing he's made. And I think Hot Fuzz is equally good. And and I've I've revisited Hot Fuzz a few times, and it gets better every time I watch it. Uh, I didn't love At the World's End myself, but I've I've only watched. I love one that time. movie. It might um, be my favorite one. We've had our conversation about yeah. Scott Pilgrim versus the World. Yep. Uh, we've had a conversation on the show about Baby Driver, and uh, we are about to have a conversation about um, uh, about Last Night in Soho. I I don't know how much of this is because of the Ant Man fiasco. You know, there's the the famous story about Ant Man, which is that mm-hmm. Edgar Wright was originally slated to direct it. He worked on the per- on the um, process for a long time. Um, he eventually- this was before the MCU is the MCU. It was in the midst of the MCU becoming as synonymous as it was right now, and I think right. there was a point at which before the grand master plan of it. Um, I think he would have been part of that. In fact, in fact, I, as far as I understand, the conversations around why he left the project have to do with the sort of overarching arc of the MCU versus what he wanted to do. Yeah. And the way he describes it is they wanted an Ant-Man movie and I was going to deliver them an Edgar Wright Ant-Man movie. And that was a problem. <laughs> right. Um, and, you know, Peyton Reed picked up the film and I, and I think Peyton Reed did an excellent job, but there's always a part of me that goes, man, I would love to see Edgar oh, Wright's sure. version of Ant-Man, but you know, whatever. Um, and I also thought about a couple of things this week as well, where uh, Steven Soderbergh uh, talked a lot about the, and, and you can go back to our uh, review of his film this year. Um, uh, what was it called? No Time to Kill? Or um, so what do I, I'm, I'm blanking on the, on Soderbergh's movie this year on HBO. He's got so many of them. Uh, but we reviewed it and I loved it. Apparently not enough to remember the name. Yeah, well, remember the name, Shahir. <laughs> oh, it's coming to me. It's coming to me. Um, but... Um, <laughs> Uh, he, uh, it was, uh, no sudden move. Why did I have no time to kill There you go. I was, I was crossing. John I was Fisher. like, yeah, I was like, it wasn't, I was like, no time to die. That wasn't <laughs> what? No. Soderbergh had this thing, which is, he says the most important films he made were King of the Hill and the Underneath and Kafka, those three films, Okay, which are three films 
nobody has it like very few people have seen few few people have seen very very few people have seen and he said those are the three most important films he made because they are the films that defined how he wanted to make films and he had the opportunity to make them outside of the public limelight you know remember his first film six lies and videotape propelled him to superstardom he won the crown's uh, jury prize uh, mm-hmm. and i believe won an oscar for um for best screenplay that year but he said the next three films he made were complete flops and nobody saw them and that helped define who he was as a filmmaker edgar wright on the other hand has only made a handful of films but every one has been under an enormous spotlight and doesn't well i don't know if everyone has been under an enormous spotlight i think after shot of the dead and hot fuzz i think that's where we kind of hit that stride Right, but I think like, and perhaps I'm overestimating the sort of the film fandom kind of collective. But it, within film circles, I think everyone knows who Edgar Wright is, and everyone knows his work, and everyone has high expectations. Like you said, um, uh, Scott Pilgrim versus the World is probably one of your favorite movies of all time. Mm-hmm. So I think I, what excites me about Last Night in Soho is I feel in the sort of Steven Soderberghian sense of films that define the type of films you want to make and the type of filmmaker you are, I feel like this is one of those movies for him. And I still, without, I mean, I'm obviously kind of giving away my opinion on the film. I do think there is a there is going to be a breakthrough moment for Edgar Wright where, I mean, and again, in the UK, he is, uh, you know, he is a well-regarded filmmaker. In most of the world, he's a well-regarded filmmaker. Yeah. But I think there is, the, there, the, the sort of propulsion to superstardom has yet to happen for him. And I feel like it will. Like, I, I'm fairly assured that it will at some point for him. Yeah. I don't know if it's this one, though. Right. <laughs> I, I don't know if it's this one either. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, here's here's what I will say. I do know that the Internet Movie Database describes Last Night in Soho as an aspiring fashion designer is mysteriously able to enter the 1960s where she encounters a dazzling wannabe singer. But the glamour is not all it appears to be as the dreams of the past start to crack and splinter into something darker. What is that darker thing? Is it a darker shade of blue? Is it a darker shade of green? darker shade of turquoise what are we talking about here uh well the posters are neon blue and red so i I guess that would kind of be what it is um i think that's a really nice short description of of how this movie functions and goes it gives you the feeling of what it is without really you know ruining everything so good good on you imdb this is a seal of approval yeah two thumbs up from macro yeah yeah um i guess for my my first thoughts about this uh Mirror what you say. Edgar Wright is one day going to, you know, film buffs already kind of know uh, the pedigree of him and his his skill and the craft he brings to the to the medium. Uh, And one day it will be synonymous with Spielberg's and 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 Nolan's and all that jazz. I do believe that. But this I don't think is that moment. Um, Something that I've always admired about Edgar Wright is his ability to take really interesting and not necessarily difficult, but different, sometimes difficult. And in this case, I think difficult um, cinematic techniques and marry them so seamlessly like things that would stand out in any other filmmaker's work. But in his, it just all flows together and feels like it's a cohesive whole. And you're never pulled out of the experience by the technical acumen. It only draws you further into the story that he's telling. In this case, mm-hmm. it's the first time where I think that does not work. That synergy is not there. There are some phenomenal 
amazing technical shots in this movie that I was I was watching it I had a jaw agape mm. I was I was in love with what I was witnessing at that moment but I never felt like for whatever reason and maybe you can help me parse this or someone else write us in onlymoviepodcast at gmail.com if you can help me dissect my uh, complex feelings about this movie as I get into them <clears throat> I I didn't feel like that technicality and that precision and that sort of um, almost um, what's the word I'm looking for like uh, flair or 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 uh, like pomp and 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 presentation was actually serving the story at hand. Mm-hmm. It felt like it, every time there was a great technical moment, it pulled me more out than it drew me in. And I mm-hmm. don't know if that's a weakness of the of the overall story's ability to grab me in general, or if the, the, it just felt so disparate. I, did you feel that at all in this in this film? I I can only answer that question in relation to my response to Baby Driver, because I think my response to Baby Driver was similar to what you're describing right now, mm. and I will say for me personally, I think the execution of his technical ideas here, while not as um, um, sort of and this is the wrong use of the phrase gimmicky as the as the as the the sort of central premise of baby driver you know the the the, pre, mm-hmm. the the technical things that he presents here are within the world of the film we're seeing whereas sure. the t- the the technical um uh gag of baby driver feels like the the thing that hangs together the film itself you know what i mean right but the yeah. thing with baby driver too this is and maybe this is just our interactions with different yeah. w- enjoyment or not enjoyment or, or suturing to to each of these films baby driver for me you're 100% right it's a gimmick yeah. but it's a gimmick that works so well that in the moments i forget about the gimmick like it's also tied in with the story more clearly as to why this gimmick is happening and like it 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 all feels like I, I, like if it's if if it's a water slide it's a smoother one whereas well, this one has some bumps and might get some some cuts on your legs as you go down. So this is one of those situations we're going to have where we're going to basically, I feel like we're going to end at the same, um, with the same uh, thesis about this film. But we're going to get there in two very different ways. We're going to oh take my God. two, two oh different my routes God. to get to the are same we, point. Wait, wait so are, are you Eloise or are you Sandy? And then which one am I? Well, those are two sides of the same coin. I think in this Are case, they the same coin, though? <laughs> and they get to the same spot, a.k.a., I, the, you know, the, I don't want to say anything yet because we're not in spoilers. <laughs> uh, I might be the landlady. Who knows? Let's, let's, let's oh, get there. Oh, Diana Rigg. <laughs> what a fucking powerhouse that woman is. Uh, she just wanted to know, just wanted you to know it was her. Yeah, um, I know. <laughs> um, I think like, like there's two things here, two simultaneously competing thoughts here. Sure. Which is, I think the technical wizardry that that Wright displays is more refined, elegant, and much more coherent and cohesive in Last Night in Soho than it is in Baby Driver for me. With uh, the film as a, as a whole, as a whole. Oh, interesting. However, okay. I also agree simultaneously that this story doesn't connect in the same way that Baby Driver didn't connect for me, which is that Baby Driver really didn't land for me. And ultimately, 
here, the, here's the thing with this movie that was challenging for me. And I, I oddly, I put, you know, so uh, if you follow me on Instagram, and by the way, don't because it's not worth your time. Wow. Um, wow. Uh, um, wow. There's a lot to do, unpack with that, what just was said. But just if you do, do, talk to your therapist about I, that. I, I just post, whenever I watch a movie, instead of posting on a litter box thing, I just post on Instagram. I just, I throw up the poster of the movie I'm watching um, and, you know, just put it up on, a, on my Instagram stories. Uh, and, um, this movie, when I posted it up just today, was the most like people asking me what I thought about this movie. Like, okay, more than any movie I've ever, I, I've probably posted. Uh, people were just interested to know what I thought about this particular film, and my my response to everyone was, I think this is really worth checking out. Mm-hmm. I, but I also that is not a glowing recommendation of this movie because I don't I don't think it fundamentally works. But for the first hour of this movie i was enraptured i was like i was watching this with a like like you oh before it turned into a horror film i think though the the problem is is it's not the horror film of it all like this this is the other thing is that Wright knows what he's doing he's very purposeful and the thing that you're talking about in terms of like how does the connective tissue work in this film i think it what it happens is is that his his decision making process about what he's going to show you, what he's not going to show you, and how he's going to connect two ideas together is so assured and confident that what happens with me as I'm watching it is that I just feel like I'm in the hands of a good filmmaker. Like, and it, but but he does a thing which is that he is an obvious filmmaker. He is a you know he is doing big tricks in front of you, and in many cases you are seeing the tricks and understanding the tricks as they're happening. He is a flamboyant magician if filmmaking was akin to being a magician and you know there are other magicians who who you barely know are in the room but are surprised when the rabbit appears in front of you you know and and in this case the the wizardry on display in that first half is so good the wizardry on display throughout the entirety of this film is amazing i think when the film gets into being a giallo sort of infused um don't look now you know the the nicholas rigg film um sort of metaphysical manifestation of like Tira and you know the other film I'm thinking about is, is Roman Polanski's Repulsion I think the film doesn't quite work but but I think if you are in the know and you know what this film is trying to do you are in the hands of a filmmaker who's acting very purposely to get you there. Well, then so, what, what is the being in the know of what this film is trying to do? Like, when I watch Don't Look Now or um, the, the Bird with the Crystal Plumage or, you know, mini Dario Argento films or any films like that, I, I'm often unconvinced by the story, but I'm dazzled by the storytelling. And I think, and this is this is a similar case, which is that that particular style of film has always left me feeling this way. So I don't mm. think it's like purposefully um, unfunctional in the way that I think he wants it to be. Like, I think he wants to make a sort of giallo-infused sort of um, 60s throwback paranoid thriller that leads into this sort of psychedelic manifestation of, like, what is the connection between these two people. I think it, I think it's he's doing that, and he sits up to do that. I find that that film has always left me a little bit cold, and I think this film leaves me a little bit cold. Well, again, I go back to, I mean, this is the first of his films where the main character, and I mean that by Eloise, yeah. 
um, their own life or wants or things about them are not terribly as directly I could make longer stretches connected to the overall plot of the film right and I'm wondering if that's one of my points where I kind of get bounced off the water slide like uh I guess we'll get into sort of minor spoilers here um but Eloise is a girl who lives uh in the suburbs or in the in the rural areas not in not in London who wants to go to fashion school and we're introduced to her with a lovely musical number with her parading around in a newspaper dress. Mm-hmm. And very Edgar Wright feeling moment um but then as the movie continues <clears throat> the desires of of Eloise kind of fall by the wayside. There's two things you know about Eloise. One, she loves the 60s, like yeah. loves them, like yeah. super duper loves them. And two, you know, has that like young person enamored with the big city, can't wait to be there and experience it all, right? Right. And then, uh, you know, when she gets there, you have your classic like, ah, oh, it's a little too much and da 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 da. But also, you know, she's. M- <coughs> This is the part that doesn't fully connect because the rules change constantly, and I can get into that aspect of it later. She's minorly psychic slash can see dead people. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Yeah. So, like, she sees her mom and her grandma, who she lives with at the time, mentions that, yeah, like, you know, the uh, have you been seeing your mom lately? No, okay, great, even though she's lying about it. Yeah. Um, and there's also a subplot of like the city was too much for her mother and fashion, so she didn't survive somehow, but then like, you know, so they're nervous and da da da. And they kind of drop that element fairly quickly as we sort of move through the movie and Eloise gets more tied into the Sandy uh aspect of it all yeah but but that is the that is the same story right like the, the this idea that she has this connection it's right not but there's no well, but 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 yeah. the sandy the sandy story is not connected at all to eloise no it's not uh, but i think i think the idea that's not explained here is the thing that you mentioned earlier which is that she can see dead people is is that that is the part like the fact that she can see her mother and the fact that she can see sandy is supposed to be, I felt like connected yeah, in some way. Yeah, but here's the problem. And now I have to get into full spoilers. I'm so sorry. We're almost into the thing. But if we're going to keep going down this road, the problem where that doesn't work is spoilers in five, four, three, two, one. Sandy ain't dead. Sure. So, so, so there's a couple different things that work and don't work in the rules that are set up. And what I found is very successful in Edgar Wright films is he kind of knows how to maneuver a story around things he wants to explain and not explain. For instance, Shaun of the Dead. You don't give a shit about where the zombies come from because that's not what it's about. He deftly moves around it. The world's end. The aliens, like, kind of do an info dump at the end, but it's all in comedy, so, like, you don't really care. No one gives a shit why Scott Pilgrim gets into video game fights because that's how Scott Pilgrim sees the world. There's even Baby Driver, again, with the gimmick, is tied directly to Baby only being able to drive when he doesn't hear the ringing in his ears, so he blasts music. That's why we hear the music. Here, here, there's no connection to Eloise's, who, who Eloise is. Like, this is the thing. Eloise is a completely audience surrogate character. Mm-hmm. Everything about her is blank slate other than, I want to go to fashion school. 
everything else is empty and just the is the is the conduit for the audience to see the experience of of uh either Sandy or or uh a conduit character experiencing sort of out of body experiences. Like I don't know anything about Eloise except she's instantly good at fashion, which is great. And even though we don't see her be beloved by the people around her, the people around her love her instantly. Like, like the, she works at that bar, and except, all she does is not. Ja- was it Jackal? What was her name? Ja- Oh, uh, Jocasta. Jocasta. Greatest okay. name. Okay. Love the name Jocasta. <laughs> yeah. Shout out to Hank Pym on that one. Um, but the, the yeah, other than the mean girls in the front, which is just sort of set up as a, a, craft, as a bit of a- The girls yeah. from the craft. Yeah. The girls, oh, well, they did dress up as, as the girls yeah, from exactly. the craft, which was a lovely, lovely reference from Edgar yeah. there for a Halloween party. Um, the But like the people that she works with at the bar that she's always just late or fucking up, like they, they love her. They even say, about, we love you. You're the best. Da, 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 da. And you're like, really? How is she the best? Obviously, John's character, Michael Agio, uh, you know, is, is enamored with her, which is fine. There's sort of a love interest thing there. But uh, the, even like the um, oh, what the heck was her? Uh, uh, oh, the. Yeah, the boss of the bar says she's like family. The fashion teacher is like, no matter what happens to her, like she almost stabs a student, but yet she's still like, oh, but you're still the best, and don't don't forget your dream. Like, there's a lot of like, okay, she's the perfect. Almost stab Jocasta, and I'm like, I'm cool with that. No, no, but like, (laughs) so my point being is, it's a surrogate character that also all the other characters or 95 percent of the characters like love, but we never see why, like. Can I, can, she's just like the good person and I, I never felt connected to Eloise but we're seeing the entirety of the movie through Eloise's experience of another person's life hang on I, I felt like we went down two different uh, forking paths here to quote uh, Louis Borges um, but the first one was that you didn't feel like the mechanic of the story was connected I jumped ahead yes to, to the character of Eloise right and then no this- I didn't feel like the the well well Yes, and actually, I think one oddly, I I didn't actually veer too far from my point. Yeah, all of the other characters, the main characters in Edgar Wright movies, um, their personal story ties to however the film is being told. Right. So, so I think that that's point one, and then the point two was that you were, you felt like uh, Eloise was a little bit of a blank canvas, uh, and you right were, and. Yeah, and because I know literally nothing about her, I can't suture to that. I, yes, does she see dead people slash not dead people, and that's why spooky stuff is happening? Yes, I understand that mechanically that's what's going on, but it doesn't feel connected to her well, specifically because I don't know her. Well, because then you, you offered a proposition there, which was that the mechanic also didn't work internally in its logic because Sandy isn't dead. Well, that's a side thing. That's a, a minor thing, too. Like, yeah, because I was going to say, because in terms of that... Like you, I don't care. I mean, the mechanic is important as so much as you want to make it important, but I'm also like in the hands of a filmmaker where you go, if you believe this mechanic is important and you're showing it to me in this way where you're not spelling it out, I'm willing to go along with the ride. But he's not- normally so smooth with that and like he knows where, like it, can you, I, can you, I- use, use the term magician and I think yeah. that's really smart. He yeah. sh- waves the thing over here so you don't see the thing over here. And this one, you see both the things. But can I can I offer one pr- proposition that yeah. might, because, uh, so uh, I, I'm trying to take this apart point by point, but the thing about Sandy not being dead and the mechanic not quite working there, which kind of makes it feel like it's, 
um, not quite functioning there. A proposition. What if the person whose vision she's seeing isn't Sandy's, but Jack's, who is the dead person buried in the house? <clears throat> Does that kind of clarify the mechanic for you? Hmm. Because at the end, it's Jack right. who's kind of telling her that you need to um, save us or help me, right? Well, so there's two sort of things, too, because they're not ghosts. Well, they are ghosts, but they're also showing her psychic visions a, a long road to, like, Jack. But 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 you can see. Oh, well, actually, but here's the thing. Here's yeah. the thing. It do, That doesn't work because even before she meets Jack, she experiences being Sandy. I think she, I, I, we could have to do a point by point on this, but, like, and, and and I'm not too invested on making this mechanic work, but I I would venture. No, it's a to good guess, it's a good try. It's I would venture to guess that every in every instance where we see Sandy, Jack is there, and we are seeing Sandy through Jack's eyes. But even but we like for instance when she walks in like and it's it's like she is Sandy but she isn't and she's embodying yeah, Sandy. Yeah, she's embodying Sandy. <laughs> But but I, like when she enters the the I keep wanting to call it the El Rey but that's the Cowboy Bebop bar yeah, what yeah. the what's the bar in this uh, the Rialto thank you yeah. when she enters the Rialto actually the Rialto is the second it, bar I can't remember what the first okay. one was uh, she doesn't see uh, Jack right away but, and but I think and, she sees what Jack is seeing which is Sandy walking in I mean maybe I don't know <laughs> sure. Because, um, and I would say, just as a, a point to try and make that connect, it is Jack... So the ghost is psychically projecting the entirety of the experience from Jack's perspective into Eloise. I think what we're, see what, what we're seeing is, is Sandy through the eyes of Jack. And, be and that the reason, if, if we want to pin the mechanic down, which I, I don't think we have to, and I, I wouldn't, you know, invest, I don't think a, a theoretical analysis of this film is hinged upon making this mechanic make logical sense. But No, 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 I agree. And yeah. and it'd be an interesting thing for Ghost Jack to be doing if that's the case, because it starts all like, like you think, you think you'd see it from his point of view, yeah. which you, you uh, his perspective and his point of view are two very different things. Because and we very we very much see it from Sandy's point of view. I, 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 I would be curious to go back to revisit the film through that. Yeah, lens. maybe I'm and, missing something. I don't uh, know. But, but at any rate, uh, like, like I say, I don't think for me personally, it doesn't theoretically matter too much to nail down this mechanic. And my, my two problems, and the mechanic thing, honestly, is like a, a third tertiary yeah. minor issue that I don't care about. It's an Edgar Wright movie. It's stylized yeah. as hell, rock and roll. Yeah. The two major problems I have with it are, I saw the magician doing the trick, Yeah. and I think I saw the magician doing the trick because I had no point to suture in on, like with all of the mechanics going, like nothing felt like it was an entire cohesive whole that could keep me going. It was, the tube on the water slide was slightly deflated, and I was feeling little bumps here and there. I, and again, I am going to get to the same point as you, but I'm going to take a different path down this river. Um, okay, Ooh, is it a lazy river? There's is, nothing I, better than a lazy river. I am I am on the lazy river on this one. Um, no, I I I think the ultimately the. Um, there's a quality to what happens with the final act of this film, which is perfectly functional. 
right? Like, it, like in terms of the mechanics of the story that is being told before us, it is perfectly functional to accept the reality that that while we thought that Sandy had been murdered, and this is a spoiler for the whole movie, but we've accepted spoilers at this point. Yes. Sandy is, in fact, the landlord, and what has happened is she has been murdering the people who abused her and buried them, or it, their bodies are within the walls of the house that, uh, that uh, Eloise now is sleeping in. And no one's smelling them. No one's smelling them. There must be a lot of... Uh, what really you... good ventilation in the walls and floor. And what, what is the thing that, that Walter White told us to do to bodies to like get rid of the smell? I don't know. Because these bodies have been there for a while as well. Yeah. Formaldehyde? No, that would probably kill you. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but I think there's a perfectly functional resolution to that story. And Sandy... Um, sitting down on the bed uh, in flames, engulfed by the bodies that she has dis- um, killed over the long, uh, over her years, is a perfectly reasonable, um, reasonable resolution to the story. Agreed. However, it does not ring as a meaningful resolution to the story, where we get a sense, a deeper understanding of who Sandy was and why she did the things she did and, and generate like, I think you get the one note, you get the one note person comes to city, big dreams, gets stuck into the wrong crowd, abused, falls down a terror hole and then fights back in a, in this case, uh, however you, you, I won't put morality on it, but in a murderous way. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, but it doesn't ring emo. Like I don't feel emotionally resolved by that ending and i don't feel sort of well because you only get half of an emotional experience with it you because because again i do truly feel there's no emotional resonance other than maybe the the fear of eloise being attacked by ghosts that you get about the character of eloise you understand sandy's character but you only get that for like 30 to 45 percent of the movie so you're only getting half of a emotionally resonant experience through flashbacks of ghost projection like i i I feel like i know enough of what i need to know about eloise to carry the film like i i don't feel like no no the structure makes sense i'm not i also feel like Yes, you, cared, you, you cared about that character? I don't know if I cared about it, but I don't feel like I, well, I didn't feel like she was a blank slate, which is the way you're describing her. I felt Tell like me something other than fashion school and ghosts about she Eloise. She is a young girl who adores the 60s, who lost her mother at some point doing the same things that she does, and has a fear of being, uh, of being that same person. And she is enamored by revisiting that life. We and are so told she we are chooses told that, that she over, feels that way, she, but she we don't cho- actually like. I don't. I don't ever see, see I feel, that. But 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 she chooses. She makes those choices all the time. The the very choice she makes to do that is that she takes this bid sit instead of staying at the at the school that she's at because she doesn't like those people. And then when she's asked to go out on a date with John, I believe it is. Yep. She's she she's kind of more excited by the idea of going home to dream about Sandy, right? Like she's she's making that choice all the time. And so I I, I I'm not saying it's like I'm you know 100 percent connected with it, but I'm also like. I, I don't believe I was connected with, with Baby from Baby Driver or Scott from Scott Pilgrim. You know, like, I feel like I know enough about them to kind of get through what I need to get through. And I mean, and, that's fair. That's yeah. fair. I just, I, there's, <clears throat> I'm trying to put my finger on why 
this very technically brilliant film does not land. You know, that's the thing. You, you bring up a good point. Yeah, you, there's a lot of points about Eloise you just brought up. So we know these factual things. But I think the way Eloise moves about the world, or at least that we see moves about the world outside of speaking to maybe the grandmother, mm-hmm. and that's only in the very beginning and a very tertiary point at the end, I don't understand where Eloise fits in with any other character. Even, to be perfectly honest, even Sandy other than, oh, you rented this room and you see ghosts. Right, Which yeah. Which could be fine. But, like, normally I just, I feel like there's more connect, like, character connection that gets me in. And that's why I think I leaned on, possibly incorrectly, the more blank slate thing for Eloise. And again, yeah. this, is not, this is not a criticism of uh, Thomas and McKenzie's performance in the film, which I think is very good. Yeah. I just, I... I I yeah, didn't latch in. Uh, that's fine. I I can see again. We're gonna come at these from different yeah, points, but we're gonna get to the same point. Yeah. Which is I also didn't connect, but I but I but I didn't think she was a blank slate, and I felt like the the sort of broad strokes of what I needed to know about her were there enough for me to kind of yeah. to navigate the film. I think the and even the broad strokes of like why she would be interested in who Sandy is, because Sandy, as she is being presented, is the antithesis. Of what she is in these moments where she kind of sees herself and that she has this sort of there's almost like a Alfred Hitchcock kind of vertigo transference of personalities happening where Sandy allows her to kind of experience the sort of or Jack or Jack uh, experience the kind of confidence and, and like assuredness about what. Uh, being coming to London and being confident in yourself is that she isn't experiencing, and then and it's then, so of interesting course, too. Like, what what's the thing that's being said about that too? Like, because she loves the '60s, right? She yeah. loves that big city '60s vibe, yeah. and then initially it's that it's so beautiful and gorgeous and glamorous, yeah. and then it all turns dark and hellish, and then <laughs> it's tell- like, what is that actually saying <laughs> about that sort of like? Um, Fervor for yeah, either fervor something for that you are not of, or either nostalgia or something that you are not the otherism, right? Oh like, no, they're actually. Uh, I, I was reading an article in Sight and Sound today um, uh, where Edgar Wright was talking to, and I can't, I can't actually remember the phrase, but he said that there was a phrase uh, for nostalgia for a period that you didn't, uh, that you you never experienced, and I think, yeah. I think in there he called it anemia or something like or something along those lines. Um, but I would also call it, it. It has to do with Boudriad's simulac, you know, simulation and simulacra, mm-hmm. which is you know, um, uh, Boudriad, uh, uh, Jean Boudriad, uh, famously author of The Matrix, um, <laughs> and this, uh, you know, the 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 governing theory behind simulation and simulacra is that uh, simulation is a direct one to one representation of a thing that no longer uh, is available to you. Simulacra is a one to one representation of something that never existed yep. and and this is the, the 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 question that you have here is of of Eloise's fetishization of the 60s has to is is an almost a, a simulacra of the 60s she she doesn't know what it was like so the rabbit hole that she falls down is the reality of what it was and I'm telling you right now I'm telling you someone who knows what it was like and has no fetishization about it is John there's a great story in this sight and sound review that talks about, uh, and it's in reference to a Louis C.K. bit, unfortunately, uh, but how time travel machines would be only used by white men, you know, because that's the, the, the only white men will be able to go back and experience things as the good old days. And like right. everybody else will kind of be like, go back and be like, uh, no, thank you. Um, you know, I think I'm better off here. And, and so I, I just kind of, 
this fetishization of the 60s is obviously coming from a point of view of like not understanding what the 60s actually meant right. on a one-to-one level. Um, so I, I, I like that. And I think there's been a lot of writing about this film being a sort of um, interrogation of our notions of nostalgia and how they can be dangerously perpetuated. And I think... I think the thing, I like that take the best, to be honest. I like that take. I feel like it's a fairly surface level take. And and I feel like the movie is a fairly doesn't really you know, the the movie kind of does that, but not in a way that changes what I think that that would mean to anyone. You know, like it, I think Back to the Future, for example, has a similar take, but more interesting uh, a more interesting resolution of that take. I would call it in this film a tertiary take. It's yeah. it's sort of subtext that happens around what is going on. Yeah. Um, but it, it's not like... Maybe I'm wrong, but when I watched the film, I wasn't like, ah, yes, this is about the dangers of nostalgia of something you didn't experience because you can't possibly know entirely all of the things. Like, I didn't take that away yeah, I didn't, in the like, moment. Walk away from that, going, "Oh, wow, that's really a thoughtful take on that." You know? Yeah. So, like, a, a, a deeper read of looking for, you know, of 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 subtext in here. Yeah, I, I think that's the case. Yeah. Um, but I also don't think that's the point of the movie. And I think uh, I think a lot of um, uh. The Id- I think the Edgar Wrightisms are fully on display here. And again, his scene to scene confidence you oh, know, like, yeah. is is unparalleled. You know, like the, the club scene, the first club scene, oh and my the God, camera work so... and the way that the mirrors function in that thing, and like, oh my it is is absolutely mind bogglingly fascinating. Apparently that dance number that they did is a legit only dance has, number. Yeah. yeah, it has it has two digital effects and the rest is in camera work. Yeah, and I'm like, what the fuck? Like, <laughs> it's, it's so good. It's so good, and you and you you sort of that is the point at which you're kind of dazzled by this whole experience. Is like this is you're watching the scenes of Eloise and Sandy in mirrors of each other, and they're doing things like. I think getting their will, coats taken by James and Oliver Weasley or whatever yeah, the Weasleys, the, yeah. yeah. Who apparently, Anya Taylor Joy kind of like freaked out when she realized it was the Weasleys. <laughs> That's um, great. But I, I just you watch that and you go, I think these are going to be, you know, when we look at dance numbers, we think of singing in the rain. I think when we look at mirror scenes from now on, we will look at this film, yes. and think about how this film did it. Uh, so he's just like, you know, he's writing the textbook on a lot of technicalities. But yeah. again, on those notes, and I feel like most of those moments in this movie are in the first half. Yeah. Um, when it starts turning into a bit more of a like a CGI ghost things bursting out of mirror walls, I I kind of lose traction. I like um, I like I like that the representation of the monsters that live in the walls has a narrative creation. Like they don't just look the way they look because someone has designed them. The storytelling ex- explains to us why they look the way they look. You know, like we see Sandy 
has suddenly at some point become, you know, Jack has become her pimp. She has become a prostitute and uh, a, a completely forced prostitute. And, and the men that come on, uh, come into the, come into the room, uh, all begin to resemble one another. So yep. the faces all merge into a blank slate of yep. nothingness. And then when Eloise sees them in, in her time, they're black and white because yep. they're, they're from another time. So I actually really like the sort of, storytelling design approach that he's got I like the storytelling design of it but I'm saying I was much more enamored with the practicality when it was in a less bombastic sort of like yeah thing when, um, when the, unfortunately you know like you I think you're alluding to those moments don't dazzle or scare yeah. in the way that I think the beginning dazzles you you know mm-hmm. like you're sort of like oh uh, yeah this this sort of I can kind of see this working, but not really. And and part of me goes, I wish I'd seen it in a theater where you could just be fully yeah. absorbed in that moment. But you know, well, you know, I, it, it still doesn't feel quite you know there. Um, I will point out. Uh, I think Chang Hu Chan, Chang Hun Chan, who um, who shot the film, who also shot, I believe, it chapter one. And he shot Old Boy as well. Nice. Um, you know, uh, remember uh, when we we talked about the distinction between it chapter one and it chapter two, and yeah. shot it chapter one, and and I I think I said in that episode that there is a a textural quality that he brings to the visual mm-hmm. effects of the scene mm-hmm. that are kind mm-hmm. of like pretty ma- like every image has shape to it. Yep. Um. Again, on full display here, where it's like you're seeing really complex things happening, but the whole palette of the film. And the lighting of it still has shape, where you're like your eye is being directed in one way, in one place over another. You you know you you feel like those choices are being made. So, uh, you know, again, without goes without saying those sort of technical qualities. I think a much harsher criticism of this film that wasn't syncing with it would be less forgiving of how technically accomplished this film is, because on a storytelling level, the film is not resonant, and and also it is not. Um, in my opinion, not successfully engaging in its final act. Now, I will caveat that by saying that the Giallo films that I've seen that kind of get into that territory and even the sort of the 60s paranoid horror films, you know, again, particularly Polanski with Repulsion and Rosemary's Baby. Well, no, Rosemary's Baby actually really works for me. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. (laughs) I was like, Uh, what? Repulsion also really works for me as well. Uh, A lot of Polanski films really work for me. It's it's, it's a a troubling thing. Um, But but I think the, you know, like the, 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 the Lucci, not the Fulci's, but the Dario Argento's of the world have, I've always been like, technically dazzled but never quite fully emotionally engaged and i think when we talked about uh luca guadagnino's suspiria um sort of talked about the same thing as here as well so what i I guess what i'm trying to say there (laughs) is that if you know you know and if you know you might like i never have quite engaged in that way but wait that made (laughs) three percent sense to me start again I'm saying if you're if you're cinematically in the know of the of the ballpark that this film is trying to hit, then that final act might actually really work for you. What is that ballpark 
that the it's Dario trying to Agintos, hit. The Dario the Giallo kind of. So uh, shallow things that turn, like, have an interesting sort of, like, twist or, like, visual affect or technical yeah, prowess? I, I, like, even Nicholas Rogue's film, uh, I believe it's Nicholas Rogue's, uh, Don't Look Now, which I think is very revered in the space. Mm-hmm. Um, I've often found that the the first half of that film where it's Donald Sutherland kind of grieving, uh, I think it's him and Jane Fonda. I might be thinking of, I might be mixing that up with Clute. Um, <laughs> uh, are... You know, like, it, who was the woman in Don't Look Now? This is going to bug me right Don't now. get distracted. Stay yeah. on target. Um, uh, anyway. <laughs> oh, Don't Look I now. just realized, side note, that you're wearing a Walter White shirt right now. I am now. wearing a Walter White shirt right now. It's Julie Christie. Why did I think it was? Uh, I don't know. Anyway, I, I, I find that the first half of that movie where it's about their grief uh, is really, really good. But then the second half when it's about, like, um, uh, a little person cult in 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 Venice, like less engaging. Yeah, um, who the uh, fuck? Sorry, spoilers, but don't look now. Excellent film. You should watch it. Um, <laughs> so I'm saying, if you know those films and they're your bag, I I think this film is aiming in that ballpark and hits that ballpark. Mm-hmm. For me personally, I watch it and I kind of feel a little, eh, you know, I I think I think the capability of making Sandy's story more resonant has not been fulfilled by this Sandy's by this sto- Sandy's story is hyper one note yeah like I, I, I and then to your point it's also um the mechanic gets in the way by yeah. the end yeah. yeah yeah so so here's here's the thing here's where I'll land on this movie I think I'm going to go, I'm going to do some flip-flops. It is a super ambitious move for Edgar Wright to sort of move into this positioning, I think. He set himself up, he does a very smart way taking his course through his career and now he's here and it's like a swing. And we always talk about swings on this on this show and how we actually really like to see them even if they don't connect with us. And that is where I will agree here. Mm. I think this movie is my least favorite Edgar Wright film, mm-hmm. but that still makes it yeah. really, really great. Like, <laughs> like, and and just because I didn't connect, like, just because I wasn't taken down the smoothest water slide of enjoyment like I normally am, doesn't mean that there isn't a ton to just dive into and glean and enjoy here. Namely, for me, was the technical acumen and um, just sort of the uh the how the how the sausage is made as opposed to tasting the actual sausage oh uh God. was oh my yeah, goodness okay which was really which was really um what what dragged me in yeah. um you don't really get any answers to anything uh i mean you get the answer to the main plot twist but other than that again like it's supposed to be like an eloise story and like i guess she still sees ghosts but you know she, you know but now like it's good because she had a good fashion show <laughs> like i like I, 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 I just gotta speak for jamie on this one too fashion is such like a throwaway thing in this <laughs> thing it's like I, you know what do young people do when they move to london uh, uh spin the wheel fashion great like it, it's like <laughs> okay outlook, cool right? yeah uh, but it's not important to the story, yet we keep cutting back to, like, the school and the design of the dress that's in her head and, like, whatever. Like, you think it's going to go somewhere and it doesn't. 
I, I really I do want someone to make a passionate accounting student film. Like where where the character is so passionate about accounting. Loves numbers. Loves numbers so much. And, I guess we got and that. that film the, is the Ben Affleck vehicle, film, the accountant. The Ga- yeah, the Gavin Gavin Hood film, the accountant, which I have seen. Yeah. Uh strangest film. Uh most unusual <laughs> film. However, it's odd. um Yeah, uh, so I guess what my bottom line is before I toss it over to you is like, yeah, you should see this. I think it's inter- I, I think even if you don't connect with it. You trying to figure out why you don't connect with it is far more even fascinating than seeing a lot of other films for or, or more a more worthwhile element of your time. Or maybe you hyper connect with it too. Like there's <laughs> there's the chance. So like I would still say watch it, even though this this was not entirely my bag. Um, Sheer? Yeah, I you know the only part of I guess what I'm somewhat dis- not having the same reaction as you is that the first half of the film. I was not just enamored by the technical acumen of the film. I really did believe in the connection between Eloise and Sandy. Like, I really believed in the affection that Eloise had for who Sandy was. Like, I could see why she dyed her hair. I could see why she wanted to make the dress that Sandy had. I could see why, rather than go on a date with John, she wanted to come home and dream about Sandy instead. And I and I felt in that situation, the technical wizardry of the film was working in harmony with where the, where the emotional narrative through line was actually hitting. So I was quite so I know for you it was a blank slate and you weren't there you weren't there but this is the inverse of Scott Pilgrim where I was Possibly. never emotionally invested in Scott and um what is her name in the film Which one Ramona? Ramona. Yeah, I was never invested in in the the romantic idea of Scott and Ramona. So the technical wizardry while beautiful and amazing just felt like it was getting in the way of, of right. this problem I was having. And that feeling is how I would describe the second half of Last Night in Soho, which is that when the, the, the technical wizardry of the film was not correlating with... And this is, I think this is important because it's not the storyline, but it's the emotional through line of the film. It's like, what is the film really trying to elucidate about people and these two people because i think that's what we most graft onto and there's also side note just again there's so many like weird twists this can go so the ghosts at the end are like the ones showing her like whatever and they're like save us save us and the idea of saving them is i guess burn the house down so that their spirits can be free right Uh, but here but here's the question aren't they fucking terrible people anyway like this whole movie makes us paint them so like why are you saving them why should this? Wait, because wait, they're but, okay. This is an interesting question because the yeah. the question you're asking is why does the filmmaker want us to care about Eloise saving them, or is it about whether they deserve whether they deserve to be saved? Everything we've seen from these monsters, and they've been painted as that. We're never given like another side of that story. So that's all we know. These men are all abusers and monsters, right? They, they, when in the twist, want Eloise to save them, which I think it means like but either sh- killing, hold on, yeah. either killing Sandy or burning down the house to find the bodies to like, I mean, it's a whole bunch of like ghost shit that they don't get yeah. into in this movie, but we can glean from other things like, oh, if the bodies are discovered, maybe their spirits could be at rest or like whatever the fuck, right? Yeah. So, so 
it's kind of a weird sort of connection because all we've seen is Sandy become hyper abused. Eventually we see her become a murderer, but only of the, only of her abusers. And then, and then she's the big bad because then she decides for some reason to try to hurt Eloise. Like it's a, it's a complicated if you're looking for a moral take here, there's one that's really hard to it's hard to latch on to any of them because there's no and granted, life's like that. Like that's fine, but in a movie that is asking you to latch yourself onto again the character of Eloise, which I don't think I think it's a slippery one. I I didn't latch on. That was an added layer of like, well, wait, so who's the bad guy and who am I supposed to care about? Oh, it doesn't matter because the main character outside of her love for the '60s and where she lived is not connected to them. So, like, I don't know. It's a slippery slope, but I think Edgar Wright navigates it in a sort of interesting way, which is that I think, uh, because we're having this sort of conversation about what is the moral fabric of the film itself, right? Like, Mm. because the the, the film has a... uh, I've talked about this, and I I feel like I should actually, like, articulate this in a paper at some point, but the morality clause of films... Right. And 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 I think the this particular film navigates that morality clause, which is a theory to be tested, um, uh, sort of effectively by not actually giving Eloise the ability to engage in the act that would that would be decisive for these characters. She's she the the fire accidentally happens. Mm-hmm. She basically. Uh, escapes from Sandy's clutches, and Sandy makes the choice to sit down and end her life. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so Eloise isn't actually like engaging in the. Sa- oh yeah, yeah. I say, you know, like when they say save her, she doesn't make the choice. No, to no, save no. Them. I understand that. I think that honestly, and I don't care what the moral decision is for the character. Yeah. I think it's a less in- it's it's cleaner for the audience and the story they're trying to tell, but a less interesting story overall, in my opinion, because you're right, the character didn't do anything. Our right. main character didn't do anything to resolve the issues surrounding her because the issues surrounding her have nothing to do with her. Yeah. And that's like a weird thing to ask an audience to latch onto as your surrogate character in a film it's and again it's not entirely it doesn't entirely not work but it doesn't work just enough where i can't get on board with this thing yeah i i think again i'm in the same place but for a diff, for a slightly different reason but not in disagreement with you um yeah. i i really did like this movie a lot and i really do think it is worth your time Yes, uh, I like talking about it, but yeah. I, I think I like talking about it more than I liked watching it. Yeah, which is fair. Um, yeah. So I, I kind of... I. But you yeah. have to watch it before you can talk about it. <laughs> yeah, See? Kind of, That's how they get you, Shahir. Yeah, you get you got to sort of be half in the bag on this one. So it's, a, you know, like, I, like I've been saying to everybody, uh, you know, check it out. It's worth checking out. Um, uh, but, you know, like... Uh, ver- uh, um, you know what you're vary. getting into. <laughs> yeah. you, you, this is what you come here for. Yeah, go well, watch the movie. Go on, we'll go watch the movie. I want to before we go, and this is going to be a slightly longer side, but I feel like we've we've kind of oh, wrapped boy. up the conversation about. Should I um, say the thing? Is it about this movie, or should I transition no, it's not into about the this end movie. part? Of, okay, so here we go. <laughs> this has been the only podcast about the film last night in Soho. Shahir has another thing he'd like to talk about. I just thought 
of all the stories I've heard this week. Oh, by the way, thank you for listening to our episode of The Last Night in Soho. You can check us out at OnlyMoviePodcast at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter at OnlyMoviePod. Now, the story that I heard this week <laughs> was one of just the most fascinating stories. And and uh, have you been following the case of, um, uh, where is it here? The story of Anthony Broadwater, who was exonerated no. this week. Um after having spent 16 years in prison uh, and then living his life as a as a officially registered sex offender. I don't know if, if this is a registered. I, I have not. No. The this is this is will eventually become a film story, but I'm very curious about this story and, and the way it actually happened. Is that Anthony Broadwater um was accused of rape uh in the early 90s or uh, sorry, early 80s. And um, he was accused of rape basically based on um, some junk science and uh, a sort of false verification. You know, like basically someone pointed him out in a lineup and it was a very um, falsely um, acquired lineup. There's a sort of racial sure. dimension to this as sure. well because Anthony Broadwater is a black person and, and he was in an all-white jury and the case was kind of wrapped up very quickly. And he has lived a sort of fairly sort of terrible uh, life. I mean, you know, he's a, apparently he's a lovely man, but he, you know, like after being released, uh, he, you know, basically couldn't get a job because uh, he was on the ridge that six offenders. And he's this has tinges of Mockingbird if it if it went a different way. It'll be interesting. Um, and 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 the reason this is interesting is that the person who accused them, and and I want to be careful about the way I phrase this because. Yeah, this 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 took this podcast took a turn I wasn't expecting. I just, I just think this story is so interesting in a film related way. Um, the person who accused him is an is a well regarded author who many of you might know is Alice Sebold, and she wrote a book about uh, her experience called Lucky. Alice Sebold, if you, you know, is the author of The Lovely Bones, and you know the Peter Jackson movie The Lovely Bones uh, was based off her book, and she wrote uh, a sort of uh, account of this uh, sexual assault on her, um, and the book was called Lucky, and the film, and 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 the reason Anthony Broadwater's um, exoneration came about was because they were making a film about uh, an adaptation of Lucky. Mm-hmm. And and what happened was the producer who was actually Holy fired shit. from the movie, uh, a, a guy by the name of Tim Timothy Muchanti, M- Muchianti, I, I'm sorry if I'm butchering that, basically was fired from the movie. But But because he was making sort of points about the discrepancy between the script and the book and he and he and he kept there was this nagging feeling that he had that something wasn't adding up here yeah and he was fired from the movie after a bunch of decisions were went about but he couldn't let it go so he actually decided i'm going to go investigate this a little bit so further. he started a true crime podcast <laughs> no he actually just he he no he hired, just did it he did it. He hired a private investigator who went and found out who the person in Alice Sebold's book actually was because uh, Alice Sebold didn't use his actual name. Mm-hmm. Um, and they went back and they opened the case file and they got some the district attorney and they got some lawyers to attach themselves to the case. And they actually exonerated this man completely. Like they, they, they had his case entirely thrown out because none of the evidence matched up. And I thought it was interesting. And since then, the adaptation of Lucky, the Alice Sebold film, it, well, the, the the, the adaptation is, is being completely shelved. And I just can't think of, I mean, there's, there's uh, Errol Morris's film, The Thin Blue Line, um, but and perhaps the Andrew Jarecki documentary, The Jinx, about the Durst's. Um, it's so interesting that basically 
this book has existed for a long time, completely, you know, like it's a number one bestseller. I, I, um, uh, Alice Siebold is a, is a well-regarded author, but nobody has ever checked the story. And the, per- and the first time that somebody actually checked the story who was doing an adaptation of this film figured it out. It falls apart, yeah. It, it completely fell apart. And I, 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 I don't know why that caught my attention. There's a podcast this week um, called... Uh, uh, Trish Wood is critical. Um, it's the first time I've read, so I, I can't vouch for how great a reporter is, but I, I just sort of listened to this episode uh, where she interviews Tim, uh, Tim Mucciati uh, on the story. And I think it will give us, in, in that ongoing conversation about art versus artist, it will give us an extra dimension for which to think about like a film like The Lovely Bones or any story that is a true life adaptation. Because the point that they make here is that a lot of these stories don't get vetted when they get turned into books because why would you? It's that That's right. like a procedural thing that takes a lot of work and effort. If someone tells you their story is true, then why would you not believe them? That is at all a random aside, but it is sort of film related. And it just kind of gave me an extra lens to think about the the relationship we have with the film. I want to be careful about that because I'm not suggesting in any way that Alice Seabold was lying or anything like that. She did undergo, you know, as far as even the case file tells us, uh, a horrific experience. But it's the result of that horrific experience the, the man, was, a, but was, was another the, horrific experience for well, this man. Well, that's the thing. Is, is yeah. the whole thing, sorry, I'm just trying to follow. Is, so she actually had the horrific experience. Did she just mis, misaccuse the person like in a lineup? Like she... And this will relate to a Roman Polanski film because there's a great Roman Polanski film called Death and the Maiden. But essentially what Alice Sebold, the way she describes it is months later after the attack, she is walking down the street and she sees Anthony Broadwater and there's some instinctual part of her that says, that is the person who raped me. And she takes... And, and, and so it was a... Uh, it was, uh... She wasn't like that's the like I, I, I you know we don't have to get into it. This because is a complicated it's, story, and I and, I, and I, yeah. I apologize because I don't want you to have to like jump in and try and make judgment call. I'm just saying that I think the story is really. Fascinating. I'm just confused. Yeah. And so she put she she says I I believe that that is the man, and they decide to have a lineup, and that and he is in that lineup, and she actually identifies the wrong person. She doesn't identify him in that lineup as well. But the uh, district attorney at the time, I believe, kind of nudges her back to her original choice and that warrants a prosecution and put, ends up putting this man in prison. Wow. Fuck. And, 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 and in that time, she writes a book about that experience and the book becomes a best-selling, you know, a best-selling book. Um, and, and the only reason it the, the fates reverse is because a film adaptation was going to happen and a producer was doggedly uh, willing to kind of follow the story because they didn't think that the things added up. Shit. I just, well, I, story blew my been, mind. <laughs> yeah. This has been stories that uh, uh, blew Shear's mind that are adjacent to the film industry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, a special new segment we put at the end of all of our Last Night in Soho episodes. Why not? Let's do that from uh, now on. Hey, it's Shahir. Criterion Corner and then Shahir's obsessions. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Shahir, when you are not sharing nakedly your obsessions to the world outside of the films we are discussing, where can folks find you? 
What you wouldn't want to do is log into my webcam because you would see I'm not wearing pants right now. But if you did, it would be at www.shahirdad.com. That's S-H-A-H-I-R-D-A-D. Matt, you are looking at me in a way like, is he not wearing pants? When you're making that confused face, where can people find you on the internet? You can see me <laughs> correcting Shahir, knowing full well he's not wearing pants just on principle. I understand this. I've known you for quite some time, my friend. Over at my <laughs> website, M-A-T-T-H-E-W-K-R-O-L.com, my life and works. Also, Skeletor, the number four, P-R-E-Z on Instagram, or Emperor MSK on Twitter. Also, please check out the good works we are doing over at Extra Credits. Hey, everyone, I have something to ask of you. Yes, me, you, me. Okay, no, Hang not on. you, because I, on. Hold on. I know your schedule. <laughs> um, we just launched the thing we did on Twitter with Vampire the Masquerade for their uh, Month of Darkness campaign back in October. It is now a VOD on YouTube. It's called Vampire the Masquerade: The Heist. Uh, it is a phenomenal, phenomenal uh, actual play. Uh, one of my absolute favorite things I've done in my entire career. Uh, and uh, I, even if you, even if you're a person that doesn't like watching tabletop RPGs, uh, it, the storytelling by Jasmine Bular and our phenomenal cast, Arthur SVP and Jen uh, Kretschmer. Um, is is second to none, and I was just got to be there and go along for the ride. It is a phenomenal thing. It's about two. It's about the length of a movie. It's about two and a half hours, uh, and it is really really good. So if that remotely interests you, please go check that out. Uh, also, by the time this drops, we'll have uh, also dropped our Conquest of India Lies series, where Rob answers all of the things we got wrong, and um, and, and 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 apologizes for our mistakes. But it's always fun. The Lies episodes are always some of my favorite because, like, it continues the conversation about the historical topic, and yeah. it's not just like what we got wrong. It's like people in the comments bring up something that either maybe we missed or didn't have time for to cut out, and it's like that's the time where we can actually have conversations about the history that we discussed. So those are some two non animated things that we did lately that I'm very proud of. So please go check those out. Um, next week. Oh, so actually Shahir, it's coming up to the Hollandaz season. The Hollandaz? Um, yeah. You know, just the jingle, jingle, jangle. Um, and so I'm not saying next week will be something holiday, but we should discuss something holiday soon. Um, what is next week? Do you have something on the docket that you're psyched about? I got to be honest with you. There's so many films that are out, that are out this week that I am dying to see. Uh, there is Paul Thomas Anderson's Licorice Pizza. There is Jane yep. Campion's The Power of the Dog, which is on Netflix streaming right now. There's Kenneth Branagh's Belfast. There is Mike Mills' uh, is Mills' uh, Come On, Come On with Joaquin Phoenix. There's um, Red Notice. Uh, Red Notice, the most watched movie of... Like, there's a part of me that goes, do we have to discuss this? Because this no, is we the don't. biggest thing on I, the I planet? I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. And <laughs> I don't... This might be the cynic in me, Shahir, but I don't trust numbers given by people that are not vetted by other things. Netflix can say whatever it wants about its numbers, but it's not like the Nielsen ratings where like people can come in and review it or they're not part of the company that owns the content. Like but you can Netflix say whatever you want. Yeah. You can say oh, a, a bajillion, bajillion hours. And it's like, that's more than everything. It's like, cool, but. Cool. I, I, I I'm sort of I, like the the thing that I've noticed from people who have seen that movie is that when they hear the statistic that that is the most watched movie on Netflix and that the equivalency of its watching would be a bigger gross than any movie that's played in the theater in the last three or four years, um, they're like, wait, what movie are you talking about? Did I? 
they have no recollection of the movie they actually watched. And those numbers, that that congruence, that bullshit of like, oh, well, if if these views were ticket sales, yeah, no shit, but that's not how this works. Like that, and also views. Do, are we going to start dividing? Like, do we can we divide the actual hours watched to see how many people or how many groups of people it took to complete one viewing? And even then, it doesn't it doesn't play into the well, having to go to a theater buy a ticket, etc. Every every number is bullshit anyway. But like, I'm curious about that. Um, uh, but but if we're going to do that. Rebecca Hall's film Passing is on Netflix, and I've huh. heard nothing but great things about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel like there are three black and white movies that have come out in the last year that we should we should just devote an episode to black and white cinema. There's uh, yeah. the Kenneth Branagh Belfast, Mike Mills. Um, I, I forget his. I think it's Mike Mills. I correct me if I'm wrong. He directed Beginners. Um, and- also, Shahir, uh, I don't know if you'll be going back to theaters yet. And I know you definitely don't want this to be your first one. Uh, but Spider-Man: No Way Home, we will have to discuss. Sadly, will we? Will yeah. We? I want I, to. Honestly, I watched Shang-Chi. <clears throat> this conversation is never going to end, by the way. But I watched Shang-Chi because it, it was on Disney+. Plus. It took me four goes to watch that movie. I and just I really felt, liked it. And, 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 I, and I, I have the same response to like this thing that everyone says about Red Notice, which is like, did I watch that movie? I, I don't remember watching it. And I, I did definitely watch that. I just... I. Uh, I'm coming up to the point where, I, uh, you know, Omicron aside, might be able to go to a movie theater, and I'm trying to think what the first movie is. It's not going to be Spider-Man No Way Home. I'm so go just, see a movie beforehand because we're going to do it. I just it, don't it, know. It when. cannot be Spider-Man No Way Home, and I, and I, I just, I, the more I see people talking, you know, what Edgar Wright was really talking about is nostalgia. What I see about Spider-Man No Way Home is this passion for nostalgia that I don't care about. And well, I'm like, you know. <laughs> I do, and yeah. therefore we're gonna go down the road. I just yeah. don't know when. I we have to figure out schedules. I yeah. I don't know. Anyway, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this long ass ending to the episode. <laughs> uh, was not expecting to go an extra fifteen minutes, but here we are. Uh, we'll talk at you next week. Hey, thank you so much for listening. You're all the best. Um, email us in onlymoviepodcast at gmail dot com uh, to thank us for that compliment, <laughs> and uh, we'll talk to you next week. Throw some imaginary view counts at us. Say we're the most listened podcast in the last half hour. Most listened. (laughs) If you give us a review on iTunes, no matter how many stars you give, five would be preferable, by the way, just make up a number and say that's how many times you listened to an episode. Tell us how often you listen to us on the bathroom. Lie to us about how much you, in, in positive numbers, in large numbers, about how much you listen to us. On every platform you can, Twitter, uh, Pinterest, uh, MySpace, Friendster, whatever you use. I know we've already talked and we're, we're wrapping up, but people, Spotify's Wrapped is coming out and we are getting messages of people who said that we are one of the most listened to podcasts of the year. We love those messages. Thank you. Keep really? Them. Yeah. yeah so we've I haven't seen that we, yet. That's we were, lovely. As we were talking, people were telling us that they that we are one of the most listened to podcasts and we appreciate it. That's, That's super great. Hey, everybody, thank you so much. Uh, we, we are small but mighty. And by we, I don't mean me and Jahir, I mean all of you. Yeah. Um, anyway, thank you so much. We'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.